there was a woman being interviewed uh, about being autistic. And as she spoke, I mean, now it's really funny because I, I listened back to the interview last year and I thought, it seems so neutral to me what she's saying now. But at the time, it was like these blows landing on me, this kind of absolute recognition and this sense that finally here was me. Here was somebody whose experience was so similar to mine and I'd never heard it before. Welcome to Tilled Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. This week, I'm grateful to have Catherine May as my guest. Catherine is a New York Times bestselling author whose titles include Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, and the just released in the U.S. book, The Electricity of Every Living Thing, A Woman's Walk in the Wild to Find Her Way Home. Catherine's memoir of uncovering her identity as an autistic woman set against the backdrop of setting out to walk the 630-mile southwest coast path in the United Kingdom. Catherine is also the editor of The Best, Most Awful Job, an anthology of essays about motherhood. Her journalism and essays have appeared in a range of publications, including the New York Times and The Observer. I loved the voice Catherine gave to autistic women in her book, The Electricity of Every Living Thing. And during this conversation, we'll get into how Catherine navigated her journey of first self-diagnosing and then seeking out an official diagnosis and what that meant to her. We also discussed how her relationships with others changed or didn't when she shared her diagnosis, the grief that some parents experience when they realize their child is neurodivergent, as well as the importance of wintering or actively accepting periods of sadness in our lives. Before I get to our conversation, if you want to dive deeper into this episode with Catherine, please check out the show notes page on Tilled Parenting. There you'll find a bullet-pointed list of key takeaways, a transcript of the whole episode, links to all the resources mentioned, and a podcast player with the episode broken down into chapters. So if you want to go back and re-listen to a specific piece of the conversation, you can easily find it. This week's episode can be found at tiltparenting.com slash session 273. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Before I hit record, I mentioned that you you are a requested guest. And when people start emailing me and say, you have to listen to this interview, you have to read this book, I pay attention. And I was really happy to to learn of your work. I'd actually like to start by talking about the book that I first learned about your work through, which is called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. And I heard your on being uh, interview with Krista Tippett, which was just a wonderful conversation. So I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about that book and why you wrote it. Sure. Yeah. So Wintering um, is a book I guess that that draws on my kind of lived neurodivergent experience, really. Um, to talk about the times in life when we feel kind of cast out in the cold. Um, so those fellow periods in life when we feel like, uh, you know, every, everything else is carrying on around us and we've dropped out, you know, whether that's through 
mental or physical illness or through a bereavement or, you know, something like a divorce or a big life change. Um, they're, they're these times that come to all of us, but we don't tend to talk about them very much. Uh, and so in wintering, I wanted to really kind of manifest them for the world and show show everyone that they had this thing in common. Um, and also to talk about some of the gentle ways that you can endure them, I think, is the, the best way to put that. I think about the timing of that book and it came out here in the States in the fall of 2020, which was a dark time for everyone, really, um, months into the pandemic. And I think so many people were coming to terms or learning about this term of languishing. They were experiencing sadness around we or things that they hadn't really ever experienced before. And then I, I found your book to be really comforting and almost permission, right, to be in that sadness did I'm just wondering what you heard from readers or did you get that sense that this was really landing with people in a unique way yeah I mean pretty much that what you said really that people were really glad to I, I guess read a book that wasn't trying to make the best of it in a in a really false way you know that there's nothing in wintering that says um, how to 10 steps to winter perfectly so that you beat winter you know <laughs> it's really not that kind of book uh, and it's in fact a book that talks about acknowledging your sadness your frustration your anger um, and learning to to be with it and to walk with it um, and not to really think of this as something that you can win at you know but to instead think of it as a process that you engage with and that will come either way, you know, that it's not your fault, but also it's not something you can do the right things to avoid or beat either. Um, I don't think we have those conversations very much in the mainstream. You know, I don't think we often allow the possibility that there are some parts of life that will come to us and they are negative and they're unavoidable. Um, and I think that, you know, what I've really heard is this kind of rush of recognition and gratitude from people who just needed to be able to see where they were and not where they should be. Yeah. This concept of actively accepting sadness is something that really resonates, I know, with many of my listeners. Can you talk a little bit more about that, you know, that idea of leaning into pain while not, or, or the sadness, but not fully giving into it in a way that could maybe be harmful. Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, as someone who suffered a lot of anxiety and depression in my life, um, sadness is something that, you know, I spent a lot of time flinching away from and really trying to escape and thinking that it was this dark thing that visited me that, you know, was beyond my control. Um, but I've I've come to see it in a different way, really, that actually sadness is a very safe emotion as long as we are able to let it in and as long as we have it in context, you know, as long as we know that we're allowed to cheer ourselves up from it, that, you know, that we're not doing anyone any <laughs> any disservice if we take care of ourselves within that experience of sadness. Um, and yeah, so it, I, I think the real pain comes from that constant flinching away from sadness rather than letting ourselves feel it for a while. That's where the fear is. Yeah. And as I was reading that too, I also related to that idea of so many listeners of this show, so many people in my community are 
working toward accepting and leaning into, you know, who their child is. And it's that same kind of tension that that disconnect between accepting what is and leaning into that and that the pain can often be caused by trying to to avoid or deny or not really look at what's going on. Yeah, I mean, there is, well, there's a lot to unpack there, really. But there's so much in our culture and the culture of parenting that for in the first place kind of is about, uh, you know, like seeing it as some kind of a competition, you know, and, and you are if you are doing everything right, your children will be absolutely perfect. And this is what perfect looks like. And it's this very kind of specific set of criteria. Um, and, and, you know, when your child doesn't match that, it can be incredibly painful. And also it can, uh, you know, attract blame towards parents for, for something that is really nothing that they've done. There is a kind of grief that comes with learning your, that you're neurodivergent or learning that your child's neurodivergent. But that doesn't mean to say that that neurodivergence is a bad thing. What we're often grieving is like this life that we imagined and the loss of it, you know, the, the patterning of life that we thought was going to happen. Uh, and that can take a while to shift, you know, and, and I think what we need are more positive representations and more just ordinary representations of what these other lives look like that have been so carefully excluded from the mainstream. Um, and to know that there are many of us out there living a really good life and actually quite often more conscious and contented lives than many neurotypical people are living because they also suffer from this society that's set up to say that everything has to only be lived in one way. Um, and I, I think that there's a, a lot to be said for that contemplative time that comes when a big change happens and, and the way we're drawn away from the world for a while and, and to allow that change to, to take place in us and for us to really accept what we've been presented with, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. And that's something I, I think about a lot and talk about is this idea that our our neurodivergent kids really demand that we do the deep inner work if we want to have meaningful relationships with them, support them, show up for them in the way that they need. We can't just kind of glide through and and do all the usual things. We have to to really lean in and do that work. And I also agree that can lead to such a more meaningful existence and connection with our kids. When you're parenting a neurodivergent child, you don't get to just follow the kind of set pattern that everyone else is following. You know, you have to think everything through and you have to learn different skills and different ways to do things. And that's, you know, that's a strain. Like it's nothing to do with the child. It's just that when you're kind of breaking the patterns that are already set, it's it's hard. It's hard work. And it's, you know, that's it's valid to to find that difficult. Yes, indeed. Worth it, but difficult. Yes. yes exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to to pivot and talk about your new book. And and it's new in the US, I should clarify. It I believe came out in the UK a couple of years before Wintering did. But uh, as we record this, it's coming out today. Uh, listeners, it, it'll be available. It's called The Electricity of Every Living Thing, A Woman's Walk in the Wild to Find Her Way Home. And I was so pleased to read this book and because I had initially reached out to to you and, and your your publishing company about wintering. But this is the book that I think is is really going to connect with so many people 
who are raising neurodivergent kids and who are discovering their own neurodivergence. So could you tell us what that book is about and why you wrote that? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote, I mean, you know, the the whole publishing world is quite skewed. So it means that I wrote Electricity about five years ago and it came out three years ago in the UK. Um, And it's a book about the year that I set off to walk the Southwest Coast Path, uh, which is in uh, Devon and Cornwall and Dorset in the UK and Somerset, sorry. Um, And along the way, I found out that I was autistic. Um, And it's, you know, the the book's really about making the connection between the two in lots of ways, about sort of walking and nature and going to places that are on the edge lands of, of the world and exploring being on the edge lands of of humanity and the the walk opened up space for me to really reflect on what was going on in my life and to see the patterns that had been with me for so long but which I'd spent a long time telling myself were things I could overcome Um, and instead I sunk into this understanding of myself as a as a very different kind of a person to what I thought I was and so yeah the book's now coming out in the US for the first time which is brilliant um, which means it'll be available in bookstores, which is lovely because, I, you know, I've got my, I have already have like US readers for it who've managed to get it shipped from the UK. And so it's so brilliant that this will now be in bookshops and that, you know, maybe it will open up the opportunity for people to have the revelation that I did because for adult women, you know, people of my age, I'm 44 now, I was 38 when I realised I was autistic. No, I was 39, sorry, I get all the ages wrong all the time. Um, but, you know, either way, like I, I lived a whole life without ever coming across anything that I could have, you know, used to to identify, and that meant that I spent a long time feeling like an alien, really. So I'm I'm really hoping that it will find its way into the hands that need it now. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones. Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, 
a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. As we talked about before I hit record, this is something I'm hearing from more and more people, you know, who listen to this show and that I have communication with about their own discovery of their neurodivergence, going through an assessment with their child and saying, hmm, wait a minute, those boxes are all ticked for me. And it's really a fascinating thing for, for so many people. There's grief, there's joy, there is relief. I'd love if you could just take a moment to, to share with listeners the first time you write about this, but the first time that you thought, hmm, wait a minute, this might be me, and, and how that felt for you. Yeah, so I was uh, I was driving I was driving to an optician's appointment, and I was listening to the radio, and there was a woman being interviewed uh, about being autistic. And as she spoke, I mean, now it's really funny because I I listened back to the interview last year, and I thought it seems so neutral to me what she's saying now. But at the time, it was like these blows landing on me, this kind of absolute recognition, and this sense that finally, here was me, here was somebody whose experience was so similar to mine, and I'd never heard it before. And, you know, like loads of people, I mean, I, you know, I studied psychology at university, I worked in education for years, I'd come across the idea of autism an awful lot. And I thought I knew what it was, and I didn't. And, you know, I'd, I'd, into all the stuff about you know hardly any girls or women are autistic um you know all, the, all of the all of the things that we used to be taught um and so that that moment when I heard an autistic woman speak for herself I knew right away I mean you know of course I doubted afterwards of course I wondered if I was right but in that moment I, I absolutely identified with her completely and I I'd never had the chance to before Can you talk about your process about deciding whether or not to get a formal assessment? That's something you contemplated. Uh, You wrote a quote from your book is, what happens if my expression of autism is too delicate to be picked up and I I am left somehow estranged, being no longer able to explain myself? Because whatever I am, this has been a comfort for the last couple of months, knowing that I might have autism, believe it, the more I read has made me feel like I might not be so bad after all. I just found that to be so powerful. And this conflict that you had also of when you took these tests, you talk about, should you take it as your real self? 
or as your coping self and the challenges that that brought up. So can you talk a little bit more about your decision to pursue a diagnosis and and how you navigated that? Yeah. And I, do you know what I, my decision then I'm not sure would be my decision now, interestingly, but I'll, I'll maybe get onto that. But I, at the time there was, I mean, there was so little information out there about, you know, what it was to be an adult autistic woman. Um, you know, there were blog posts, there were a few people tweeting. I hooked up with, with other folk, you know, <laughs> I found online. Um, but there was really so little. And I felt like I needed to kind of pin it down, if you like. Uh, and I felt like I really needed someone else to look me in, in the eye and say, yes, you're allowed this. And like, you know, so the book kind of finishes at point of of being taken into the first stage of diagnosis with the psychiatrist. Um, and I, And actually, after that, my diagnostic process was really really horrible to be honest um it was you know they they kind of tested me as an eight-year-old boy including making me sit in a children's chair at a tiny table and read a children's book and explain the story I was halfway through a PhD in narratology at the time and I was like this is just a joke you know but you know that it, it said a lot about where we really were at the time and I you know since then I mean, I I thought that self-identification was valid then. And I think even more so now, because actually we're so often being assessed by people who don't understand autism and who who only like know how to identify it from the outside, from outside signs. And autistic women, by and large, do not present in that way. And so what we're kind of asking in the end is, do we look autistic enough for a neurotypical person to to spot it? And that's actually deeply problematic for me. (laughs) And I, you know, like I would love to, I would love to see more opportunities for diagnosis that only comes from within the autistic community itself, you know, that from, from autistic assessors meeting with people who think they might be autistic and like meeting them in a process that lets them understand themselves rather than that judges them externally and gives them a tick or a cross. Because, you know, as I said there, like if you're left with the cross, then what are you left with? Like if you don't get that, if you identify with all of the aspects of being autistic and you don't get that diagnosis from somebody who may not understand autism very well, then what are you left with? Because what you needed was the permission to meet your own needs and and you should get that either way whatever happens and and nobody gives you that right now yeah i mean it's so powerful and and certainly so you said you were 39 so this has been you know maybe 5 or 6 years ago that you went through this this process and i do think that things have changed i i certainly read more and more about the self-identification really, especially among women being really the the primary way that people are identifying as autistic. I'm just wondering, you know, for listeners who might be in the same space and they're kind of connecting some dots for themselves, what thoughts do you have for them about whether or not it's worth pursuing or or maybe what having that identification has meant for you and and what you've seen it mean for other women? I think whatever 
route you pursue and they're equally valid you know and I genuinely believe that it's just as valid as an adult to self-identify as it is to to get a diagnosis like you, you have to go for the route that satisfies you and like I'm I've always been quite anti-authoritarian <laughs> and the, as my, my friend uh my lovely autistic friend calls me the snotty kind of autistic you know the one that's always like trying to take down authority um that's absolutely me and so like I'm naturally you know not the person that's gonna bow down to a <laughs> psychiatrist just because they've got a degree well like, you know why would I get so you know that that's me and like I know that for other people it's really important to have that external mindset kind of assessing them as well so whichever way but the important thing is that like knowing what you are is fundamental to how you can conceptualize yourself and everybody I know I mean I'm I'm sitting here and I'm struggling to think of an exception every adult woman I know who has realized they're autistic has had their life positively changed by it. I don't mean it's made their life perfect. I don't mean that they found like the perfect adaptation, you know, if only those things were possible. But what I do mean is that that understanding and recognition is a kind of homecoming. And if we get the right support and if we're able to meet with our own community and to talk about ways to cope, then you can you can come to a different way of living your life that supports you as a neurodivergent person and is not about you fitting into a box that looks like a neurotypical person. And that is, I, you know, I find it very hard to express the change that that's brought about for me and for so many other people is just being able to make actually very tiny changes and being allowed to accept and love yourself, um, it's it's massive. And everybody deserves to feel like they belong on this earth because that's what we're talking about. You know, when you look at the high levels of self-harm and the high suicide rates amongst autistic people, you realise that we have this fundamental problem with belonging um, and that we deserve not to have a fundamental problem with belonging we deserve to belong and so yeah explore it you know lean into it yeah I mean throughout the book you first of all you know just to take a step back the way you structured the book is such a pleasure to read because you do really weave so beautifully you go back and forth between your incredible. I'm, I'm looking out the window at dumping rain right now. It's hard weather. And y- you know, you write so vividly about these really intense hikes that you did. Just in- incredible. Someone said to me afterwards, you do know that nobody walks the Southwest Coast path in winter, don't you? And I was like, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow, that was and, and you write about it so beautifully. And then you kind of go back and forth in your own process of, of discovering your autism and and kind of making sense of that and also kind of really connecting the dots of how you have lived your life up to that point and the way that you, like many autistic women, have masked and have really figured out how to just to be. And so, and you're so good at it that it's hard to even 
to sometimes distill, right? Yeah, it's nice to have a talent, isn't it? Mine is, <laughs> mine is masking my autism. <laughs> Right. And, you know, you wrote, I sometimes feel as though social relationships are nothing more than a precarious set of plates that I have to spin and I'm bad at it. You know, there's so many lines in there that I know people are like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. And just to tie back to what you said in the last response, in terms of the way that you show up now in your life, how has it changed even your daily interactions with other people? Is the need to mask lessened or are you more just aware that you're doing it and you're in choice about that? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I mean, because actually the the thing about being a masked autistic person is that you don't get to just drop that mask even if you want to like the masking is so ingrained it's very very hard to get rid of and you're not really sure who you'd be without the mask and you know of course the mask is also a privilege because it allows you to kind of pass in mainstream society and quite often I've learned that when I drop the mask like because I felt like it would be the best way to meet my needs my relationship with the people I've dropped the mask to immediately changes and their tone changes towards me. And that feels very hurtful quite often. I think it's really important to kind of talk about that as a, you know, as a, as a sort of baseline. I mean, for me, that's changed the kind of minutiae of my life in, in a really significant way. And obviously, like, it's been safest for me to drop the mask around the people I'm closest to. Uh, not Everyone has reacted really well with that. But 
loads of people have and I'm learning how to unmask and, and to, to sort of state my needs you know and that's often shown up in really small ways like being able to say to my husband this music's too loud or you've got this film on too loud and I can't cope with it or being able to say like I, I just can't I can't go to this event this afternoon I'm already feeling overwhelmed and it's going to completely tip me over the edge or being able to say can we go home now please I've, I've reached my limit um, and to be able to say that really gently without it being a crisis, you know, because in the past and, and like partly because even I didn't understand what was going on, I would often have to feel like I had to reach a kind of crisis point before I got to do the thing that I needed to do. You know, like I parties, I would get completely just spooked really by all the people and the noise and the social demands and I would end up like disappearing off to the bottom of the garden or hiding under the coats I used to do quite a lot when I was younger there was always a room of coats and I'd kind of bury myself under there and go to sleep or like getting upset I don't need to reach those points anymore because I've dropped my mask and I've I've began to own up to what I actually need um and that's you know that it's it it takes a little learning. It's surprising. You don't even recognise what your needs are, first of all. And this year, for the first time, like my dad loves to throw parties. And I, and instead of me kind of finding an excuse not to go, you know, like saying yes and then finding an excuse not to go last minute, he said he issued the invitation with the words, but you might not want to go, so it's okay if you don't. And I was like, no, thank you, I don't want to go. And he was like, okay, no problem, we'd love to have you there, but we get it. And I just thought, hallelujah. <laughs> you know? I felt like finally I, I began to get the message across in my own very faltering, rubbish way that actually that isn't my ideal environment. Thank you. And I love to be considered, but I love to be allowed to say no to. <laughs> that sounds like freedom. It's so liberating, actually. And and the big liberation of it is not just that I don't have to go to the damn party. It's also that somebody who loves me can see me for what I am for the first time, because I haven't always been able to own up to that without providing an explanation for it, you know, and now I have the explanation. Yeah. And, you know, just to to touch uh, upon your relationship with your husband, which you write really honestly about, and you talk about, how am I going to share this new information with him? And you write about how supportive he is of, of you and, you know, throughout your whole journey and your goals of, with regards to walking the trail. And, I'm just, can you talk a little bit about, you know, just sharing that information, which I imagine, even though you were married for many years, and, you know, again, for listeners who are kind of figuring this out, it's still a very vulnerable thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been together for more than 20 years by the time I realized I was autistic. Um, and that's a long time to feel like you've been undercover, I guess. And, you know, hopefully people will discern from the book that he is just a basically decent person. And, you know, we love each other very much, which helps. Not everybody gets that, actually. Uh, you know, not everyone has that privilege of, of having someone that loves them for who they are. But when I realised I was autistic, I, yeah, I, I got inside my head about it because I was so worried about telling him specifically and what would he think of me and what would he think of his situation in that light? You know, like what? 
what would it mean for us? And how do you break it to someone after all this time? When it came to it, he knew. I mean, he didn't know the specifics, but he knew and he'd loved me anyway. And I think that's kind of what we forget sometimes. We're so, we autistic people spend a lot of time noticing the way that the world has rejected us and the way that the world has pushed us away and spat us out and made us feel small. We don't often turn our attention to how we are loved and how we're valued. And it turned out that I was loved and valued for me all along and not for the pretend person I was because he's the person that's seen the real me the most. You can't mask all the time. And he'd seen me unmasked and he loved me anyway, even when he found me frustrating and difficult, you know. And of course, like what I don't write about the times when he's frustrating and difficult, because that would be incredibly rude of me because it's not his book and he doesn't get to speak for himself. But that's, you know, that's what love is. It's not two perfect people coming together and adoring each other unquestioningly for, for decades. It's actually, it's actually like knowing each other's difficult bits and caring anyway. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. So let me ask you one last question before we wrap up. I'm wondering, you know, throughout the book, it's clear that you also feel conflicted about the choice that you've made to walk this trail. It's to kind of prioritize, you know, your need or your deep desire to to reach this goal, to do this thing. And your your husband and your son are kind of there for you. You know, they're often waiting for you in the village at the other end of a 12 mile uh, walk that feeling of sometimes feeling guilty or is this self-indulgent or that you're not a good enough mother and but also knowing strongly what you need in that moment and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that tension and what gave you the permission ultimately to do what you did well i mean i i think the answer to that in lots of ways cuz yeah there was definitely tension you know and and the the autism aside like the idea that a mother of a 3-year-old child is allowed to go and walk is a very contested idea, isn't it? You know, we don't often get permission to lean into solitude or to like leave our family behind or to take contemplative space or to go on wild missions, which is what this was. And I like I think one of the things that autism opens up for you sometimes is this absolute intent that you get, you know, like when you have something in your mind that you're fascinated by and you can't let go of it. Nothing much can get in the way of that. Like there is no one so determined <laughs> as an autistic person who's got a mission. Um, and I, like I was lucky enough to have a family who said, okay, you do that and we'll fit our way around it. Um, and it was really hard. I mean, you know, there are bits in the book where it shows how much conflict it brought about. And that was with me doing it in a way that that tried to be as family friendly as possible, you know, like one weekend a month. Um, and, you know, like within that, there's a little bit of snark as well about regular nature writing where a, a man goes off on his own and journeys for months in an often kind of dangerous and isolated way and never once mentions who's looking after his children. Like I wanted to kind of externalise all of that and show how tricky it is to do that, but how necessary it was anyway um and I like I do think for autistic people that solitude is a basic need it seems to be something that we need extra 
to the rest of the world. Like we need quiet, we need time and space to process stuff in our own way. Um, and we can turn that into a, a kind of terrible negative disordered thing, or we can just accept it for what it is, which is a, a different way of, of interacting with the world. And we can talk about how beautiful solitude is and how having and demanding contemplative space makes everyone a little bit better, actually, because we think stuff through. Um, and so, yeah, the the book is a lot about the the complex ways in which that is necessary and how we might go about achieving it. Well, it, it's a wonderful book and I'm so honored to have this conversation with you and I I really encourage listeners to to check it out. Again, it's called The Electricity of Every Living Thing: A Woman's Walk in the Wild to Find Her Way Home. It is a just you're a beautiful writer too, you know, as someone who reads a lot and has written a, a lot. The prose itself is just so delightful to, to read and it's just wonderful. So congratulations. And is there anything you'd like listeners to know about something you're working on or where they can connect with you? Ooh, um, I'm working on my latest book at the moment. So I've been deeply buried in that, um, which means it's very hard for me to turn my brain to other things right now. But you can always find me on Instagram, uh, where I'm Catherine May underscore, uh, and on Twitter, which probably I talk more about neurodiversity on Twitter than Instagram. Don't know why, it's just where all my neurodiverse peeps are, uh, where I'm underscore Catherine underscore May underscore, which looks better on paper than it sounds when you say it out loud. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I will include links to where you guys can connect with Catherine on the show notes pages. So you can just click through. And Catherine, again, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to walk with us. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. And yeah, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.